This podcast is sponsored by Equa Medical and Clue Medical. Tele-ICU technology is revolutionizing critical care delivery, allowing healthcare professionals to remotely monitor and treat critically ill patients in real time. As a nationally recognized acute care clinical services company, Equum brings the people and processes to power hospital telehealth programs, optimizing patient flow and clinical access. Clue's AI-powered platform enhances critical care decision-making with FDA-cleared predictive insights and workflow accelerators. Equum and Clue unite the people, processes, and technology to transform the high acuity and critical care experience. Learn more about these companies at equamedical.com and cluemed.com. Hello, and welcome to the 2023 Critical Care Congress edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine podcast. I'm your host, Don Pro. Today, I'm joined by Sonia Everhart, a PharmD, BCPS, BCCP, FCCM, and Chris Ladansky, MD, PhD, FCCM, to discuss the future of telecritical care medicine. Uh, Dr. Everhart is a critical care clinical pharmacy specialist at Atrium Health in Charlotte, North Carolina. Dr. Ladansky recently moved to Mayo Clinic, Dr. Odansky, tell us what your current position is. Oh, thank you very much. I work at the Mayo Clinic as a senior associate consultant. My duties are within the Department of Anesthesia and Critical Care, and I'm also tasked with developing the faculty and ICU program there. Great. Welcome, Dr. Everhart and Dr. Ladansky. Before we start, do you have any disclosures to report? No. No disclosures. Thank you. Well, I'm sure that many of our listeners will be familiar with the general concept of telecritical care. What is the range of clinicians who provide telecritical care services? So traditionally, we have doctors, but more and more, we have other healthcare providers. You see in the ICU respiratory therapists, pharmacists, nurses, advanced practice providers who join the forces, and they're trying to pretty much bring more comprehensive care to the tele-ICU environment. Sonia, for example, here works as a pharmacist, and she should probably talk a little bit about her work. I developed at University of Pennsylvania program when we augment respiratory therapy service with the remote component using ERT and providing the care more safely and to more patients. Tell us a little bit more about telecritical care pharmacy. Telecritical care pharmacy. It was a brainchild uh, when I learned about the telecritical care program that was being implemented at Atrium in Charlotte, North Carolina, as a way to enhance the critical care pharmacist reach to small hospitals in rural areas that don't have access to a critical care trained pharmacist. By being able to work remotely, I can see and touch and impact the medicational care for more patients than if I'm at the bedside. So that's kind of how our program evolved was adding us in. We started fairly small with a couple of hospitals and now cover eight facilities. So you're part of a telecritical care team. I am part of a telecritical care team. Atrium Health has, of course, physicians like Dr. Lebowski, and we also have APPs, and we also have virtual respiratory therapists there as well. So it sounds to me as if there are different services that telecritical care can provide to different hospitals. It's not one thing? Well, I think what those are different. So first of all, you can profile the tele-ICU delivery to the, what the hospital needs. If the hospital is short on the respiratory therapies, that's when the more virtual respiratory therapies is needed. So that's one of the great benefits of the tele-ICU. Primary reason why is that you don't have a physical constraint. You have a, somebody who sits on the remote location whose needs may be deployed to the precisely when it's needed. And that goes pretty much for all the practice. As Sonia said, in her location, there is a lot of problem with rural hospitals. They almost constantly understaffed. It's very hard to recruit. 
how do you provide the critical care on the top of the possibilities? And using the tele-ICU is the way to do it. And you can extend this to pretty much all the specialities. From the you know, perspective of the medical doctor who is intensivist, this is absolutely great opportunity because I can rely on the delivery of the care to my patients, to the people like Sonia or other specialists who allows me to actually focus on the problems that I'm the best trying to do it. So tele-ICU is the perfect tool to deliver a care when it's needed and also match the needs to the skills that we represent as a different healthcare providers. One of the sort of fascinating things to me is the interface between telecritical care providers and the folks actually on the ground in the ICU. How do you work those interfaces? There's a variety of ways that you can do that. One thing is actual cameras that are located in the patient's rooms. All of our telephysicians, nurses, and even myself have a camera, and most everybody has cameras on their computers these days anyway. You can actually use a program to dial in and you come up on a screen in the patient's room and you can have a face-to-face conversation just like we are now. Not only that way, but there's the telephone. You know, when you look at the literature and talk about telehealth, telephonic communication is also a way to deliver telehealth. We have secure chat messages if you need a quick, hey, this is something I need you to look at can send a message that way. There's Microsoft Teams. There's all sorts of different ways. If you think about how a lot of telehealth was provided during the COVID-19 pandemic, our iPhones with FaceTime was a huge way to provide telehealth because it was a quick and easy way to access family members and other providers and limit the number of people that were in the room taking care of that patient. And not to underscore the difficulties, you will have problems during the deployment. People may be afraid, you know, what does the tele-ICU team brings? You know, people have a right to be anxious. But one, if you define our mission clearly, what we as a tele-ICU will do for them, that's a great thing. This is a good foundation for future collaboration. Second thing, if you provide your education. So deployment tele-ICU is not just a put cameras. You just need to go to the people on the ground. And it's like with everybody, you need to establish a relationship. So they know you a little bit. They know they can trust you. You also need to trust them because there's no other way to ask them to do just by except electronic means. I cannot show up physically in the unit. So even though there's all this electronic, beautiful ways to connect us, still, you know, there's a lot of foundational work that you have to do. Otherwise, you may fail in the delivery of the tele-ICU because tele-ICU, even more than traditional way of delivering the healthcare, depends on those relationships. I need to somehow make me people who I've never seen personally to trust me, believe me, and execute my mission for the best of the patient. So that sometimes is the aspect when doing the deployment for the ICU means you have to spend just a little bit more time. Exactly. And then when we were starting our telepharmacy program at Atrium, we actually took time and went to the sites, to the hospitals that we were going to be working with and met with the physicians and the bedside nurses and the people that we were going to be interacting with so we could develop those initial relationships that have only grown over time. So that was one of the big things that we wanted to do was to make sure we had that face-to-face conversation first before we started messaging them going, hey, I need you to do this for me. And this is actually the one of the most reasons I think why the TELICU program fails, because people just believe we just deployed the technology or some workflow maybe on top of that. And then nothing works because nobody trusts each other and we don't know how to work with each other. And we did a survey some times ago as a committee, and that was one of the reasons why the program fails. 
So the problem of the tele-ICU is not just putting the cameras or giving the face time. It's still working the workflow. It's still talking to the people. It's still getting to know each other. So do you take advantage of personal interactions before starting the electronic connections? So you do the same kind of thing where you meet with people personally? We have a couple approaches how to get to know people on the staff. So first, you know, in the deployment of the tele-ICU program, we talk to the management on the high level in the hospital. So we have the green light and blessing from them that we're going to go ahead with the program. Then we talk to the people on the ground, nurse, nurse supervising, physicians, respiratory therapies. We sit with them and we ask them questions. Okay, what can we do for you that will make your work easier, better, and an interaction much more productive? And then we try to actually have a meeting with those team every two, three months just to know each other. And those are meetings are not between the management with the management. Those meetings are the people who sit behind the camera on our side from the people who work at the bedside. And this is also the time when you can kind of match what is needed, what we can deliver as a tele-ICU group and what they need from us. Again, deployment of the tele-ICU requires this bidirectional collaboration. And people on the ground know very, very well what they need. We can deliver the solution. I think this is the correct way of looking at this. We coming to the people and they tell us how we can actually help them. What's the role of telecritical care in the Society of Critical Care Medicine? So telecritical care is just one way that critical care medicine is provided to a vast majority of patients across the country. We're critical care delivery with just a different way to do it. We still have the same thought processes and everything to take care of that patient that the person at the bedside does. We just use advanced technology to help deliver that care. I think the way I would sort of look at the tele-ICU in a society of critical care medicine, it's, again, a different way of doing the medicine, but because it's a different and alternative way of doing medicine, actually it allows us to recreate our professionality. How we do the things that we keep doing for the last 20 years, more or less the same way, a different way. An example, I met with a physician who told me, oh, during the COVID, we didn't have a chance to examine the patient as frequently because they were isolated. It is a perfect experiment when you can look like, well, were the outcomes that much different or maybe even better? And I think this is what you're looking at in the tele-ICU. It's a different paradigm, which allows you to move forward the profession that will have to move anyway. And the medicines is notoriously slow in adopting new technologies. We still use the faxes and pagers in some hospitals. But tele-ICU is the new way of looking at the old problem. And this is one of the reasons why we encounter so much, I think, misunderstanding or a little bit shyness, I would call it. Because it's also a difficult concept. You ask somebody who carried the stethoscope to do this electronically. You send the robot. You have a Sonia popping up on the screen and saying, like, that's the way you should adjust antibiotics. And, you know, it's like a new technology. We do have an Uber moments, but a lot of technologies we have, like, I need to get used to it. Now, the SCCM has a committee. Is that correct? Yes. The SCCM has what we call the Telecritical Care Committee. It is by appointment only for a three-year term. So we are currently in the process as the Telecritical Care Committee looking to explore the potential for becoming a specialty section. The advantage with that is that any level membership can join. To be part of the committee, you have to be a professional or a select member. And again, you're assigned to be on the committee, whereas if it's a section, there's no assign. You just join it when you renew your membership, and it can broaden our population for people to get involved and help think about how we deliver telecritical care in the future. Because I know that from when I started to where I'm at now, thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic, how I work has changed. 
And social media and technology is only going to continue to advance and change how we do it in the future. So we have to think about how we do this in the future now. And the way I think about this transition from the committee, which you know has a certain benefits, we're smaller, we're much more nimble, but we're also much more secluded. It's like when you think about a startup. You have a startup which comes with the new ideas. Young people come on board. They have all these energies. They have all this enthusiasm. They also have a courage to pretty much break the barriers. They don't look at, you know, what is limiting me. I don't want to really follow the old path. How can I reinvent? They have not that much dependence on the new system. So suddenly, you know, even within the tele-ICU, there are certain groups, for the lack of the better word, who believe that's the way telemedicine should be done. And there are some people say like, no, we should maybe do it a different way. That is why you need the young people. That is why you need a startup mentality. When the people come and say, you know what, I can do this different way. And I don't have all this entanglement. And I think that's one of the great opportunities in the section is going to probably take us some time to get there. But I think this is the way to change the dynamics around the subject. Because that change of the tele-ICU will come. All of us who use ever telephone for the primary care physician know very well they don't want another appointment with a physician. The same way as the medicine moves forward, in several years, the normal way of practice medicine may be gone. And then these people who reinvent ICU, well, they must providing new ideas, enthusiasm, and innovation. And that's what we hope to achieve with the section. Now, I understand that there's also a telecreative care keg. That's correct. We have the Knowledge and Education Group, or keg, that is part of SCCM. It is open to anyone to join. So if you are already practicing in telemedicine or want to learn more about it, it's a great way to get involved. It's part of SCCM Connect. All the messages roll through that platform and you can learn more about it. And really, that can also be a jumping off point to get us to potentially a section status. Or if you're interested, maybe signing up to be part of the committee. So CAC is exactly the way to get our news out that we exist. And on the CAC, you can see our announcement about the section, our research announcement. We have like a whole group which works on the research. We talk about the education. What also Sona didn't tell, and the credit should go absolutely to her, is that we also have a social media. The first year, this year, we opened the social, so we have our own Twitter. We start recruiting people who help us. So again, we're trying to get the word out and we're looking for the people to come back to us and say, you know, this is what I want to do and commit your section. We will use their enthusiasm. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and the committee has grown over the years that I've been involved with it. I'm going into, I think, my fifth year and with the committee and just seeing how under Chris's leadership, we've become a little more structured, which kind of aligns with the section status as well. But thinking about the number of offerings, continuing education sessions here at Congress, roundtables that we've participated in, critical connection articles that we're working on. So we need ideas. We need people to help us do all of these things. The research committee working on several different surveys and other research items. It's great, but there are still things that the committee can work on. Physician billing being one of those. I would say everybody's billing. Like how can you bill for anybody who is involved in the tele-ICU? The other thing, we have a unique opportunity to connect with the prior chairs of the tele-ICU committee, and those people represent at this point all possible branches of the medicine, from a hardcore physician, for the lack of the better word, to any other healthcare professional, to the people who currently work in the insurance. So if we're talking about the billing, we're talking about any problems, we actually provide diversity of the option that if somebody comes to our committee and hopefully the section, you know, the sky is the limit. It's easy to connect people. How is the telecritical care service paid for now in most places? 
It's actually a black box. We did, Keck did a session some time ago. We had around 20 plus people on that session. And what we discover is a lot of depends what kind of contracts do you have. Also, what is a very, very, very cloudy subject is that before COVID, that billing didn't exist. During the COVID, we're under the emergency orders, which now they sort of disappear, which put the pressure on the delivery of the tele-ICU services. How are we going to reinvent them? The situation is different in the rural hospitals. The situation is different in the academics hospital. Some hospitals use the tele-ICU as a way to augment existing service, but some of the hospitals utilize tele-ICU as a primary billing. So that was the, one of the very interesting ideas behind the section. We came across the people who work in our committee who figure out how to bill. And suddenly we have, a, there was like a three or five people who said, this is how we do it. And there were 20 people asking, how did you do it? Because we couldn't figure it out. And one of the reasons that what we have in our strategic plan right now is to create a task force that we as a tele-ICU providers, we can actually define how we would like our billing to potentially look like for the future, instead of waiting for the CMS and other institutions to give us their opinion. They don't work as a tele-ICU. I'm, I'm not sure what representation of tele-ICU provider is there. Because like one thing that we discussed with Sonia, how the pharmacists can bill for the service under the tele-ICU sort of chapter. There's no concept over. We as a section or the group, we can actually provide that concept. What we can deliver now to our members is the connection to the other members of the telecritical care committee who actually knows how to build and see if their model of building can be actually reproduced in their scenario. Can that be done? Whatever is done in the other places can be replicated in other places. I don't know. That's actually very complicated and a lot of depends on the local payer mix, insurance arrangement, state regulation, even credential. So that is why we as a group, we believe that this has to change, both in the terms of providing the information, incorporating non-physician into our billing structure, and then us telling as a society that that's maybe the way we should do the billing. Because we unique group. Our billing is very, very different. It should be different than other physicians. One intriguing thing about telecare care is how you can become involved even in on-site technical procedures. It's reasonably easy to visualize looking at data from the electronic medical record and making recommendations, but what about some bedside procedures like ultrasound? So again, tele-ICU is the enhancer and it's enabler. That's the way I would sort of put it. Many, many years ago, when I started working in the tele-ICU, I had the providers which I would direct by just looking at the camera how to put the central line. Okay. That used to be something very, very esoteric. Now it's became more and more and more of the standard of the care, I would say, to a certain degree. We're still lacking the standards to that, like the standard which goes all across. But again, it shows that how many skills can be moved in the telesphere. If I have an APP or resident who feels uncomfortable with doing the procedure and he needs somebody just to look at the screen and walk them through the procedure, that's where I am. Another application during the procedure when you can use tele-ICU is just to make sure that nobody breaks sterility. We always worry about the central line infection, but if you put the camera in the room, you can actually observe if somebody touched something with unprotected or unshielded hand or any part of the body, which breaks the sterility. Obviously, that role has to be very well vetted with the people on the ground. We do not want to have a perception that we supervise them or we in any form of shape punitive. But if you have a good team, that actually helps a lot. That's what we use for the COVID-19. Are you ready to do the procedure? Did you put the N95 mask correctly? Are you gowned correctly? That's very simple translation to the procedure. You know, next step, there's an article in Science that there is a robot which can use actual ultrasound AI and some mechanism to put the IV autonomously. 
maybe that's the next step of the, you know, tele ICU. You know, I was always surprised seeing the pharmacy robots. That's probably something normal for Sonia. But now you have in the tele-ICU robots which will go to the patients, put the stethoscope and do a lot of procedures. So I think this is the next frontier. We don't see that that much in the ICU, but robotics is probably the next thing that we'll see that will revolutionize to a certain degree healthcare. And again, tele-ICU is the perfect position to utilize that technology. Now, a couple of times you've mentioned COVID. What's been the impact of COVID on tele-critical care? I think it's actually made it more accessible and, what's the word that I'm looking for, friendly. People are now more familiar with the technology and using it to help care for patients just because we had to, you know, we didn't know at the beginning of the COVID pandemic and we're trying to really limit how many people were going in and out of that room. And, you know, from a pharmacist perspective, I actually participated in virtual rounds. I would camera into rounds and someone on the team, so they were still walking room to room, talking about each and every patient. I couldn't be on the unit because they didn't want too many people there, but I could be on the unit because of the technology. So I think that's really what the pandemic did for telecritical care was it normalized it. I think it was a disruptor. Like, you know, again, medical field is sometimes resistant to change. COVID-19 gave us no chance but to adapt. And it put incredible pressure on a lot of healthcare systems. And they have to transform one way or the other. And one of the transformation force was the telemedicine. Then the people discovered that actually telemedicine, one can save the lives, but it can make also their work safer and more effective. So all of this shed this sort of anxiety, novelty from using the telemedicine. And I think that was a great change that happened. What is happening after COVID, unfortunately, we see some of these changes kind of being rolled back, mostly because of the reimbursement. And again, you remove the pressure, the system starts evolving sometimes a little bit backwards. But I think the impression is still there. A lot of hospital system now at least is asking, well, how can I deploy the tele-ICU? They may not know how to do it, but at least they start asking the question. Before we as a tele-ICU ambassadors, for the lack of the better word, would go to the system and pretty much ask back and say, like, hey, why won't you think about the tele-ICU? Now the hospitals say, like, well, should we deploy the tele-ICU? Quite often this discussion goes nowhere because the system is maybe not ready. There's not reimbursement plan. There's another barriers in the place. But at least they start asking the question. I think that's what the COVID did to the very, very large degree. People start thinking differently and people see tele-ICU not as a threat, but as an ally. Now there's something that can remove me from the danger. Now there's something who can deliver more care with more efficiency. Now, if I understand correctly, both of you work in large urban centers that provide telecritical care to smaller surrounding rural hospitals? Yes. Yes. Is it also possible to have telecritical care within a big hospital? I think you can have both. So this is the beauty of the tele-ICU. When you think about the tele-ICU, the first question is, what problem do I try to address? So when there was a COVID-19, we faced acute shortage of the respiratory therapies. And developing the ERT or the virtual therapies was the need that we have to address. Tele-ICU was the perfect means for that. We have a system in place, and that's how we address that needs. Then the COVID was over. Our sort of demands and supply on the RT services kind of stabilized. Next question was, what do you do? And the next evolution step was to develop high reliability medical system when the tele-ICU is the way to deliver a high quality of the care and minimize the risk. So we kind of went back to the, you know, do not harm basics using the telemedicine. And part of the team that we incorporated was the APP. And now we're thinking about, okay, how the pharmacist can actually contribute to that. Because if I will have a Sonia who will look at my chart and say, you know, this patient maybe is too sedated, 
you can tweak the orders and she will have that conversation sort of in parallel with me. That means that our patient has a less delirium. Our patients leave hospital faster. But is that a problem of the given hospital? So you can always ask yourself, like, tell us it's not the blank thing that will come and put all the umbrella. Coming back, you know, and that goes to the question, what's needed in the rural hospitals? What's needed in the academic centers? And each academic center is different. I'm sure that we can have a countless discussion with Sonia about North Carolina and, you know, Minnesota. Okay. But that's when, again, TELICU is not the blank big umbrella. It's actually a very, very specialized tool. And, you know, I think she works in the much more heterogeneous system than I do. And I'm pretty sure what she has to deliver to the hospital A is different than hospital B. But probably you should talk about this a bit. We actually do have some form of telecritical care available in our large academic medical centers, not our largest ones, but like the second largest facility that I work in, we actually have cameras available for ICU patients that may be boarding in the emergency department. And those are kind of deployed into the smaller facilities as well, so that if you have that critical patient who is waiting transfer, you have that intensivist on the other side of the camera that can help manage that patient so that ER physician then is freed up to go do a trauma or whatever else. So there's, you know, a multitude of different ways that telecritical care can be deployed in large academic medical centers. Think about long-term acute care hospitals. They have patients who crash there all the time. Do they always need to be transferred back to that large academic medical center? Could you be part of putting a camera in a room or two at an LTAC? Things like that are other ways that telecritical care can be beneficial. Help me a little bit with understanding how the shortage of respiratory therapist was dealt with during COVID. I tend to think of respiratory care as something that's done at the bedsides. How do you make the remote respiratory care work? Well, the interesting thing is that when you think about everybody's care, there is a part of the task that we do every single day. There's some kind of routine. RT, pharmacists, doctors, we have to go through the chart. We have to check certain things. So we think about our workflow, there are routine tasks, there are urgent tasks, and there are tasks which has to be done right now. And in terms of the RT, when we look at their scope of practice, we thought, well, you have to, for example, go to the ventilator every one hour, every two hours, and check that settings. In the realm of the COVID-19, you have to go to the room and get exposed to that environment. So why not do that check for the remote means? So that is one way we sort of use the ERT, that we can camera in the room, look at the ventilator, write up all the numbers, look at the trends. So that's a very, very, I would say, laborious process. That's a process which also is quite unthankful if you do it, but that's a process that has to be done anyway. Each hospital needs to have a documentation. Documentation has to be aligned with what happened to the patients. So that's one way we utilize the ERT. Second thing is, what if the patient is crashing or the patient needs adjustment? The nurse can just push the button, get us in the room, we can look at the ventilator, and relatively quickly determine whether this patient needs adjustment in the flow, maybe this patient needs change of the modes, and at least at that time we can troubleshoot it. So by the time when the respiratory therapist, a physical person, will get, we already work through that list of the problem. That also means that if you have a, some kind of technical malfunctioning, you can probably fix that with the help of the nurse. You don't need that RT to actually walk two floors from somewhere to fix this. So it helps balancing the load on one way or the other. The third thing, you do have a both RT and you have an MD who can troubleshoot the patients which are profoundly hypoxemic or very, very complex. And if you think about the COVID when you have a shortage of the both RT, nurses and the MD, you know, having that expertise available to you, practically on the minute notice, first of all, it's reassuring. 
And the second thing is, it's again, providing the bunch of the people coming together and coming with the best solution to the patients. So that's the way we look at the ERT service. In the first step, we focus quite a lot on those different routine tasks. And then in the next transformation, what we plan to do is actually minimize routine tasks and figure out when we actually help the patients precisely in the care. How many accidental extubation can we avoid? How we can shorten the time between the surgery and the extubation for the patients? Again, RT can do those assessments remotely. I think for me, the difficult part of the task was I see a lot of things that we have to do physically, but if you ask yourself how much you have to be in the room and you kind of carefully examine that, that's not that much. Like, I don't know that Sonia has to be in the room at all. So that's a relatively easy task to uh, think. But then you ask, well, do you need to have a doctor in? Do you have to have an RT? I'm sure you need, you know, there's certain tasks that the nurses have to do. But for the, you know, APP, RN and the MD, maybe you should ask, how often do you have to be in the room? Because it takes time to be in that room. It exposes patients to the risk of the cross-infections and exposes us to the danger of, for example, having patients with the COVID that I can also get as a doctor. This has been very interesting. Are there any final thoughts that either of you would like to provide for our listeners? My final thought is if you're thinking about telecritical care and providing that service, reach out to the KEG. Reach out to the telecritical care committee. We're happy to help and answer your questions as best that we can. Well, I'm total believer in the tele-ICU. So if there's anybody out there who feels the itch that they want to change medicine, we are the group to join. Well, thank you very much. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine podcast. For the Society of Critical Care Medicine podcast, I'm Don Pro. This podcast is sponsored by Equa Medical and Clue Medical. Tele-ICU technology is revolutionizing critical care delivery, allowing healthcare professionals to remotely monitor and treat critically ill patients in real time. As a nationally recognized acute care clinical services company, Equum brings the people and processes to power hospital telehealth programs, optimizing patient flow and clinical access. Clue's AI-powered platform enhances critical care decision-making with FDA-cleared predictive insights and workflow accelerators. Equum and Clue unite the people, processes, and technology to transform the high acuity and critical care experience. Learn more about these companies at equamedical.com and cluemed.com. Donald S. Pro, MD, FCCM, serves as the SCCM podcast editor. He is the Rebecca Terry White Distinguished Professor and Chair of Anesthesiology at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas, USA. Dr. Pro completed his undergraduate studies at Lafayette College Medical School at Penn State University College of Medicine, residency at the National Naval Medical Center, and fellowship training in critical care at the National Naval Medical Center and Cardiac Anesthesiology at University of Alabama, Birmingham. He has served on SCCM's council and is a scientific editor of Critical Care Medicine. This podcast was recorded during the Society of Critical Care Medicine's 2023 Critical Care Congress. Access essential education online through Congress Digital. More than 120 sessions are available on an easy-to-use platform. Continuing education credit is also available. Some SCCM members receive complimentary access to Congress Digital. To learn more, visit sccm.org slash congressdigital. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information.
The SCCM podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Find more episodes at sccm.org slash podcast. This podcast is for educational purposes only. The material presented is intended to represent an approach, view, statement, or opinion of the presenter that may be helpful to others. The views and opinions expressed herein are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of SCCM. SCCM does not recommend or endorse any specific test, physician, product, procedure, opinion, or other information that may be mentioned.